No, Senator wishes to change the vote. If not, the yeas are 50, the nays are 49. The bill as amended is passed. Saturday, March the 6th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, it's a done deal. The American Rescue Plan is finally passed. Welcome back. After weeks and weeks of back and forth and after hours and hours of amendments and after almost 11 hours of clerks reading every word of the entire 628-page COVID relief bill. After all of that, votes going on throughout the night on hundreds of amendments put forth by Republicans. After all of that, after all of the eight Democrats plus 50 Republicans voting out the minimum wage provision for $15 an hour that Bernie Sanders put into that bill. After all of that, Joe Manchin deciding that, no, this ain't good enough for the donors. We've got to give them something. After all of that, after all of it, all of it, the United States Senate today, finally, at a little bit past 12 noon Eastern time this afternoon, passed the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief plan, the American Rescue Plan, finally passed. You heard Senator Patrick Leahy there, the president pro tempore of the Senate, And my goodness me, it is about time. The final vote was 50 yes and 49 no. And it went entirely down party lines. Now, I am not sure why there was not a 50th vote in the Republican side of things. It hardly matters at this point because I don't think that many people in the United States who are ordinary people in the United States give two rats, you know what's, about it. All that they are caring about right now is that the United States Senate finally got this done. And really, you have to thank yourselves. All of you who voted in November now see the value of voting. 
because for all the times I come on here on this podcast and say what I say about the system and about this and about that, which are all things that are not invalid that I'm talking about. It shows that when we vote, we do get to see a victory here and there. In fact, we get to see victories more often than not. And when I mean that, I mean specifically, we get to see the things we would like to see getting done. Not always, but sometimes. And we get that because we have the numbers. But we get the numbers because we have the passion. It is like James Baldwin said. You don't need numbers. You need passion. And that's really true. You don't get the numbers without the passion in the first place. If we weren't passionate enough, if we weren't enthusiastic enough, last November, last October, last September, to have voted in the United States, if we weren't enthusiastic enough just two months ago in Georgia, exactly two months plus one day ago. The final number of voters in Georgia went to vote. That's when election day was, January the 5th, 2021. And it was you in Georgia. Thank you, Georgia. Who were responsible really in principle for this moment now. You had John Ossoff, And Raphael Warnock, both winning their seats to the U.S. Senate. And if those victories didn't happen, we would not have this bill. This $1.9 trillion bill would not have passed. It wouldn't have passed. The question is on the motion. All in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, no. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes Mr. do Mr. President, have it. I... Well, motion is agreed to. Sorry. Uh, I, I move to proceed to executive session to consider calendar number 27. Question is on the motion. In favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, no. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. The clerk will report the nomination. Nomination, Department of Justice, Merrick Brian Garland of Maryland to be mm. Attorney General. I send a cloture motion to the desk. The clerk will report the cloture motion. Cloture motion, we the undersigned senators in accordance with the provisions of Rule 22 of the Standing Rules of the Senate, do hereby move to bring to a close the debate on the nomination of Executive Calendar Number 27, Merrick Brian Garland to be Attorney General, signed by 18 senators as I follows. ask consent the reading of the names be waived. Without objection. I move to proceed to le- legislative session. The question is on the motion. All in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, no. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes have it. The motion is agreed to. Mr. President, I ask consent that the mandatory quorum calls with respect to these motions be waived. Without objection. We have to do another one. 
proceed to executive session to consider calendar number 15. The questions on the motion. All in favor say aye. Aye. All opposed no. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. The motion is agreed to. The clerk will report the nomination. Nomination, Environmental Protection Agency, Michael Stanley Reagan of North Carolina to be. I must say that it is fun to see a little bit, a little fun in quotes to see the fact that sometimes the senators do stumble over little things and not laughing at them. It's not shouting through to our. It's not schadenfreude hour. It truly isn't here. But what I'm saying is, is that we're all human beings. You know, uh, the clerks are doing such great jobs. It's the women who are reading to these men or to any women who sit in the chair, the, sen the female senators, the male senators. It is the female clerks who are the ones reading the instructions to the person in the Senate chair. Telling them exactly what to say. They're dictating to them what they should be saying. The United States Senate over the last couple of days, the last three or four days, it has been quite an adventure. And I actually had recorded an episode, <laughs> which will never be heard, at least most of it, because I'm going to incorporate, there's a couple of things that I will leave in. But... Because this vote has come down now, and I didn't think it was going to happen this early, and that I, I expected it to happen much, much later. This is now the episode that is going to be. And I can tell you that watching the scenes on the Senate floor exactly two months to the very day that there was a terrorist attack on that very building... These terrorists, these white male terrorists on the floor, the very floor of the United States Senate, you had a monkey man swinging from branches. He's like he was swinging from a tree. He was swinging, dangling from the sections of the Senate wall. I mean, he was dangling from the Senate wall. Two months ago today, on that very floor, that's the difference between tyranny, fascism, Nazism, violence, toxic masculinity, these racists. And decency, getting things done for the entire American public in need, the people who really need this money. Now, I know there were some compromises in this bill. Joe Manchin was part of this. Oh, you know, minimum wage is too much. And oh, we can't have that. Oh, and Joe Manchin cut down the $100 off the unemployment. So if you're unemployed in the United States, you are going to be getting $400 extra on top of your state benefits for unemployment. But thanks to Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia, 
you're only going to get 300 now. So he cut $100 off of it and joined the Republicans. Don't you just love Joe Manchin? Those of you who aren't fortunate enough to be working at the moment in the United States. Don't you just love the man? Don't you just love him? He always does this, doesn't he? Cuts your unemployment benefits down $100. And while $100 may not be a lot to most people or to many people or to some people, for a family that's struggling, that $100 is everything. Joe Manchin's not struggling financially. I dare say he's not in any, any real appreciable debt, if any at all. And he just turns around. A Democratic senator from West Virginia. And he decides to take $100 off of your additional benefit to your state unemployment benefit. And he doesn't lose a wink of sleep over any of that. So I want you to keep that in mind. What will happen? There will be an outlining of this bill, what it entails. I can tell you that that is one of the things I did. That thing I just mentioned there about the extra benefit going down from $400 extra to $300 extra. Thanks to Joe Manchin. He was the one that brokered this. He decided I'm going to do this with the Republicans. This is part of the protracted negotiations. And he's the one that, on the one hand, perhaps stopped this from continuing on, on this Saturday. But on the other hand, this is the guy who decided, oh, no, no, we can't give the unemployed person in America an extra $100. Oh, no, that's just too much. The bill will feature the $300 additional benefits on top of your state unemployment benefits. The bill has all this other stuff in it that Republicans put amendments into. It does not have the $15 an hour minimum wage provision. And by the way, the $15 an hour provision would not take effect immediately. It would be phased in. So in its seventh year, you would be seeing a $15 federal minimum wage. In the seventh year, it wouldn't be until year seven that you got to $15 an hour for a federal minimum wage. That's what Bernie introduced. It wasn't $15 all at once tomorrow. It was by year seven. In other words, in 2028, the minimum wage would be $15 an hour on a federal level. That's what would it would have been had the provision got in. It didn't. So that's just a recap, a very brief recap. Um, the bill I will be studying in a lot more detail um, in the coming hours. But for now, really, this is going to be a much shorter episode <laughs> because I had recorded something 
that was a bit longer, under an hour, you'll be happy to learn. <laughs> but I recorded something earlier and I went into some of the theatre of politics. How, you know, movie theatres are opening soon in the United States. Here in California, they are. I got an email, which is one of the things I talked about in the unheard recording. I got an email yesterday from a certain cinema chain that talked about, hello, Omar, welcome back. Welcome back. Your movie theatre is going to be opening soon. Oh, welcome back. I'm not going to a movie theatre. I'm not going to any movie theatre. You've got to be kidding. And I wear two masks. I'm not going to a movie theatre with two, three, four, five masks on. I'm not. And the email talked about Clorox. And we've done this thing with Clorox bleach. And that really made me sit up. Because, dear, dear listener, you know very well the role that Clorox has played in the White House. Not in this White House, in the previous one. You know, when the orange fool got up there and told you that, yeah, well, maybe we uh, should uh, inject a little uh, something in, uh, you know, wherever. This idiot told you to inject bleach into you. That is not something that Clorox approved of. They had to put out a statement. This is April of 2020, almost a year ago. They had to put out a statement in no uncertain terms that bleach is not to be consumed or injected or anything. (laughs) So that was a bad move by that theater chain. And I talked about that. I talked about Kirsten Cinema and an aptly titled last name like that makes you think that you were watching a movie these last few days. I mean, we really were, weren't we? It's a movie we didn't pay for, but it is a movie that we could have paid the price for. In fact, in some ways, we did pay the price for it. Because you lost your $100 of unemployment insurance extra. You remember, it was actually, I think, The original bill last year, the first one, I think it was an extra $600. Then it got bargained down to $400. And I think it was some of the Democrats, it was the uh, so-called bipartisan model of Democrats who I believe in December or November of last year, would have probably been December of last year, agreed to a $400. So your benefit, your extra benefits got cut from $600 to $400 to $300. So your benefit extras got halved in the intervening year. So if you're out of work right now in the United States, you're going to get your state benefits, unemployment, whatever that is. And in a lot of states, that's quite low from what I've learned. Some states are higher than others. And in many states, it's quite low to begin with. So last year around this time, you would have got, in addition to what you get from your state, if you were unemployed, you'd get an extra $600 on top of it. Then that was cut down to $400 in the fall late last year with the package that came then. And now 
it's going to be cut again to $300. Now, this is with a 100, put it this way, this is with 500,000 plus people dead in this country. No, no worries about tax cuts. I mean, this was a very expensive movie for the American public to watch these last few days. And we watched it in the comfort or not comfort of our own home. We watched it on our TVs. I mean, this is what happened, folks. And we watched a performance, didn't we? I mean, we watched Kirsten Cinema curtsying and turning around and twirling away and she's thumbs down and she's gleeful about voting down a $15 an hour minimum wage provision that doesn't get to even come to the fore until 2028. And that's just fine and dandy, isn't it? You can wear your little, well, that's going to be sexist, so. Kirsten Sinema is a disgrace, as are these 50 Republicans, because I'm not going to spend time talking about how a senator who's behaving and who behaved like a petulant 16-year-old just who had just argued in the house with her mother and turned around and gave a thumbs down, where she probably would have given the finger to her mother, having argued with her in a fit of rage, and then turned around and stomped out of her mother's house, never to return. That's what that was yesterday on the Senate floor. It was unbecoming of a United States senator. And even, yes, the 50 Republicans who dispassionately voted down the bill, did just as much damage. And I'm not going to get into, well, cinema was worse because she was a Democrat. As I've said, and as Malcolm X said before I did, wrong is wrong, no matter who does it. And all the optics were focused on cinema because she did a little curtsy, like she was curtsying before the Queen of England and turned around and said, F you, America. Thumbs down to a decent living wage, a modest living wage. To heck with you, America. Your family's needs don't matter to me. I mean, that's how she behaved. And so did the 50 Republicans. They behaved the same way. Because if I start to go into cinema, 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 performance, 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 movie, 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 then I would be doing the same thing a lot of these pundits do, which is left versus right, Democratic versus Republican. And it's just about the system, isn't it? That's just the system staying in place. Two sides of a system that stays entrenched. And then we'll go on social media and we'll talk, but you know what? That's what the the system in place is comfortable with. We can complain all day, but if we don't act If we don't strategize, we don't organize, nothing gets done. And the other thing that is really clear to me, at least, is that if we don't continue to push the agenda, I said this many times. I said this on this podcast many times. I said it in November. 
I said it before November. I said it in December, in January, in February. And I'm going to say it now. You must have, we must have an agenda plan. Not only for this administration, the, the issues that we want to see get tackled. I, how many times did I sit here and did I say, dear listener, to have three issues, think of the three things that mean the most to you, issues-wise, and lobby and get people together and organize and develop a Zoom group or something and join organizations that are already doing the kinds of things you want to see and join with them. How many times did I talk about that here and push Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? I said that in the intervening months as we were awaiting their inauguration. How many times did I say that? A million, at least. Well, give or take, a few hundred thousand. But I did say that, and that does not change now. That does not apply only to President Biden and Vice President Harris. It does not apply only to the United States Senate. It does not apply only to the House of Representatives. It also applies to your state and local governments. You have to do this. And it takes 10 minutes or less. And I know we all have things going on in our lives. You've got things going on in your life. It's busy. It's hectic. It's intense. You've got all kinds of personal things you're probably dealing with. Maybe struggling with some of those. Maybe you're succeeding in some things. We're all going through things, all of us, every last one of us, right? And if you can find five minutes to do that, to just write down three action items and how you feel about those items and literally bring that or email that to or tweet it to or send a mail a letter to, your local representative. Really, you really should. You really should do this. It's a really important thing that we must do. It turns out the reason why the Republicans in the Senate had 49 votes instead of 50 is because the Republican Senator Dan Sullivan had to fly back to Alaska urgently for a funeral, family emergency. Someone in his family apparently um, passed or there was something of that nature and he was required to come back immediately. So um, my condolences to the Sullivan family uh, on their loss, deepest condolences to them. Um, but that is the reason why the Republicans had 49 votes today as opposed to 50. And what would have happened had that tragedy not happened, you would have had Vice President Harris to break the ties in these situations. I really do think I should uh, make something clear here. It, it's not over yet with this bill. 
the House will still have to vote on what the Senate has amended. So I've got to make that very clear. This was a very important victory today for the United States of America, the people of the country. Now, I think in terms of the unemployment benefits for those who are out of work, they will not be happy with the fact that a Democrat decided that they wanted to cut $100 off the extra benefits. That is going to infuriate millions of people in this country. Bottom line is that now what will happen is the bill will go back to the House. The House will, I'm sure, do their debate on what the Senate has passed. And then they will vote on it at some point in the next few days. And... um, We'll see what happens because they've only got really eight more days in which to do that or or nine more days. I believe it's March 14th or 15th, the deadline is. And they've only got a few more days to to for the House to do that. And I think that the House is not going to fudge this up now at all. Um, the House are the ones that put in the $15 an hour provision. It got stripped out on the Senate side. We know that the Senate has now, as you know, as you've been listening to this episode, today voted 50 to 49. 50 Democrats, all 50 of them, including Joe Manchin, who I spent some time criticizing, um, he voted for the bill. So every Democrat did vote for this. As much as I castigate, and rightly so, the eight Democrats who stripped out the minimum wage provision, along with the 50 Republicans who did. As as much as I criticize all of these people, no matter which party they come from, for doing this, have to give credit to all the Democrats today, who all 50 of whom voted yes on the bill. As amended, obviously, but on the bill. So there you go. So that's been done. Now it's the House's turn. And the House now, will look at what the Senate has done, Speaker Pelosi and company, and they will vote on this sometime next week. And when the House votes on it, then it will officially become, uh, it will officially be sent to President Biden's desk, to President Biden, he will sign it, and it will be put into law. So you can expect that in the next seven days, There will be a vote. It will pass because the Democrats have the majority in the House. I doubt that there's going to be any Democratic defection. There may be one or two, like we saw um, with a bill recently. A couple of the Democrats defected and voted with the Republicans. In a 219 to 212, I forgot what that was now. I talked about it on this podcast last week. But the bottom line is that that vote will happen in the House next week and the Democrats will pass it. It will get passed and it will be largely on bipartisan lines, although you never know. Um, We'll see, but it's going to pass. And at that point, the bill will get sent to President Biden. It will come across his desk and he will sign it and it will be law. And then uh, many millions of people across the United States will be starting to see um, additional monies coming to them 
in unemployment in addition to the state unemployment that they get. So that's part of it, but it's not only about unemployment benefits. It's also about the kind of relief. There's going to be the checks. I think the checks are still going to be at $1,400 per person, uh, including children. But we'll see. We'll see. And we've got to see um, how that works. And I think everything's going to work out. But um, that's just the bottom line here. That's what's happened today. And it finally got done. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is taking a huge victory lap on this. And he has the right to. I know some people have criticized Chuck Schumer over these past 24 hours for quote unquote allowing Joe Manchin to basically dictate things. I mean, some might argue, as someone I spoke to did, that Joe Manchin yesterday and last night had more power than President Biden or Vice President Harris did. Vice President Harris would not overrule the Senate parliamentarian. She should have done. That's a huge problem in my view. I know I'm going to come across like I'm sour grapes, but I'm not being sour grapes about this. This is about people's lives. This is about people's lives. And that's the problem. That's the issue, isn't it? That the vice president of these United States would not intervene. She's the president of the Senate. And my goodness me. I don't know if you made phone calls or if you didn't, but my goodness. For Vice President Harris not to overrule the Senate parliamentarian, an unelected official. She's not even an official, the parliamentarian. She's an unelected bureaucrat, basically. Official, whatever you want to call it. But she's not got any power. It's an advisory opinion. I don't think this provision can be in. I, I just think that's... You know, that's a very, to say the least, to say that's disappointing from Vice President Harris is an understatement. And they've had a cup, a rocky couple of the last couple of weeks here. There have been some good things sprinkled in, don't get me wrong, but they've had a couple of rocky weeks. They drunk, the, the military strikes in Syria the week before, I have a huge problem with that. I was very critical about that. I'm not hardly the only one. I know all the celebrities are quiet, most of them. I've not heard a peep. But because, again, I think that's because they are friends with President Biden. They've got access to him. They fundraised for him. And they're not going to turn around and stand up against it, are they? Now, which, you know, that's about principle, isn't it? And it's about loyalty. Well, the loyalty is there to him, but the principle's not. Because if you're going to stand up there and talk about how anti-war you are, that includes when your guy is dropping bombs, 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 bombs on other countries, black and brown countries. Or any country, white, black, but in this case, and as it always has been American foreign policy, is dropping bombs on black and brown countries. I mean, uh, I, you know, so that, you know, that makes people who support that kind of thing racist too, doesn't it? Because you're supporting that. You're not saying anything about it. You're not speaking up against it. But then that is your tacit acknowledgement of your own racism. If you're dropping bombs on these countries that are black and brown. 
and you talk about how important it is to stand up against racism and be an anti-racist, but then you say nothing when your guy drops bombs on Syria or any other brown, you know, black, brown country, any brown, you know, brown country, and, you, and you're silent on that, and you don't criticize President Biden or President Obama or President Clinton. But when Trump does it, you can be heard from on Twitter. Yeah, there's something insidious about that. I've talked about that before. Senator Chuck Schumer today takes a big victory lap. And he has every right to, you know, I saw him there pumping his fists in the air, his fists aloft. And it's all, I mean, Bernie Sanders and him were fist bumping each other and patting each other back and forth. I saw it before the vote, before the final vote that you just heard, that you heard earlier uh, from Senator Patrick Leahy, that you heard at the top of this episode. Before that was even announced, I saw them both there. They were fist bumping and patting each other. And they had some of the other Democratic senators doing the same. It was a, this was a big moment for the Democrats today. And certainly we're going to start to hear uh, about the specifics of what the Senate voted for. I've told you a couple of them. I just told you one a few minutes ago about the unemployment being cut. Thank you, Joe Manchin. Thank you on behalf of a grateful nation. Aren't you just special? Don't you just love it? You cut $100 off of people's extra unemployment benefit that had already been cut to 400 from 600 that, isn't that just marvelous? Oh, yeah. I think I'm going to go for I'm going to go and move to West Virginia so I can vote for Joe Manchin again. No, actually, I'm actually going to move to West Virginia so I can vote him out of office. N'est-ce pas? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, no, I'm not moving to West Virginia. I'm only kidding. <laughs> I prefer California. Thank you very much. Oh, am I so snooty when I say that? Isn't there an arrogance about that? <laughs> the bottom line is today was a good day, as Ice Cube would say, for the Senate Democrats. Because we can say what we want about Joe Manchin, and there is plenty to be said. We can say what we want about Kirsten Cinema, and there is plenty to be said. And about those other six hateful eight Democrats. And we can say what we want about the 50 hateful Republicans. Bottom line is, it was 50 Democrats, all 50 of them, including the two independents. One of whom was the hateful eight from yesterday, but now is one of the grateful 50, or the great 50 today, who voted for this bill overall. And all 49 of the Republicans who voted, voted against. So all of these amendments and all this stuff and all of this lying from Lindsey Graham. Oh, we want to work with you. We, they don't want to work with us. Give me a break. It was all tried in the press. It was all theater. It was all a movie for them. It was all a movie for a lot of people. But the bottom line is, is that on this day, after all that went on, the Senate Democrats... Chuck Schumer in particular, taking a rightful victory lap. I mean, he's entitled to do that. 
I think Schumer has done a pretty good job. I know people are going to criticize about Manchin and apparently the perception that Schumer just let Manchin run riot. I don't know if that's really true. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But the point is, is that there's a COVID relief bill that the House is now going to look at and they're most likely going to vote that in next week sometime. They will. This will be done. And then people all over this country will begin to get what they should have got weeks and weeks ago beside the package that they got before Biden got in. I'll be right back. Here now is the press conference. I want to play this to you. This is the press conference that Senator Chuck Schumer had shortly after the American Rescue Plan, a.k.a. the COVID-19 relief bill, was passed on the floor of the United States Senate on this day, Saturday, March the 6th, 2021. Here is the press conference in full. You're going to hear Senator Schumer's statement, and then you're going to hear about maybe three or four questions. It's about mm, 10 minutes or less. Now, nobody said passing one of the largest, perhaps the most significant bill to help the poor and working people in decades was going to be easy, particularly with 50 votes. But it is done. And I said from the beginning, we were going to power through we're not going to let anything stop us until we got the job done. And by God, we did. And here we are. So I want to say one thing. I am so proud of my caucus. I love each one of them. They are just so great. And what you know what unites our caucus? Everyone knows, especially with 50 votes, we all have to pull together. Everyone knows. You know, I have a leadership team that meets on uh, Monday nights, and it has Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin and Mark Warner and people in between. And that's because we all have to, we have to talk to each other and realize we need each other and be united as a team. And that is the secret to the success here. The caucus unifying, every person realizing that we needed every other person to have this victory. Sure, it would be nice if the Republicans would join us, but they didn't. I thought it was a little bit hypocritical of Mitch McConnell to say, oh, we did it bipartisan. Yeah, when Trump was president, Democrats in the minority didn't block things. We worked to get something done. Now that we're in the majority, they don't seem to want to work with us. But we're going to get it done anyway. We, we prefer them to work with us. We want them to work with us. Maybe they'll change their minds after this. But we're going to get it done regardless because America needs it. And that's what we did. So we didn't stop. We didn't let anything get in our way. And I was confident from the get-go. I just told that to the president. He called me. And I said, I knew we'd get this done, and I so appreciate being under Joe Biden's leadership. He put together a great plan, it was just right, strong and deep, but also very popular, so we had the strength to get it done, even if we had to do it with just our own 50 votes. So uh, 
I think this is a very fine day. And one of the things that I feel proudest of is we, we told the American people in the election campaign and even in the, in the Georgia campaign that Democrats would actually get government to help them, whether it's with checks or vaccines or opening the schools. And now we're showing we, we're, we're, we've, we're keeping our promise. And I think that's going to change America to a decent extent. I think people will have much more faith in government doing things and much more faith that we can get them done. And so I feel very, very good about that. I feel good about the long range here. I feel good about moving on to new victories. So I think that's all I'm going to say, and uh, I'll answer your questions. Thanks, sir. Uh, so you said that you spoke to President Biden. Have you spoken to uh, Speaker Pelosi in the last 24 hours or so about the amendments that you all passed? Our staffs have been in touch, and she knows all about them, and she wants to pass this bill. Senator what happened yesterday morning, and why were you? Why did you not sort out your differences with Joe Manchin ahead of time, and then instead you left well, open one people, vote for people more have than almost twelve hours? People have new differences all the time, but you know what's the overwhelming point here? That everyone in our caucus realizes we have to pull together and get it done, and we're a team. And sometimes it takes some discussion, and sometimes it takes some work, but we don't let our differences stop us from achieving success. But why shouldn't, shouldn't that have been resolved on the front end? People make different decisions. People come up with different ideas at different times. And we still have to take everyone into account and pull together as a team. And that's what we did. And no one's going to pay attention to the fact, I mean, well, I don't know, no one. That eight hours is meaningless compared to the relief the American people are going to get. And if it helped us get to that, great. Unity, unity, unity. That's how we got this done. Do you expect the House to pass what the Senate just passed as is, including amendments that may not be as palatable to progressive well, look, members? Look, the Speaker, the spe I spoke to a number of people uh, in the House over the last few days, including the Speaker, and uh, they know that they, they feel like we do. We have to get this done. It's not going to be everything everyone wants. No bill is, especially a massive, comprehensive bill like this. But the beauty here within our caucus, and I think between Democrats in the House and Senate, is that we all realize we've got to pull together to accomplish something. That's far more important than our differences. That's true of my caucus, and that's true of the House and Senate Democrats. So you think the president will be signing it before the March 14th yes, expiration? Yes, I de definitely do. I, I have no doubt about that, none. And that's what we said. Everything we said, we do. We said we'd put together a strong, bold bill. We said we'd put together things that do the things the American people wanted. We said no matter what happened, we would not stop and power through and get it done. And by God, we did. What could be bad? What, what is bad? Nothing. <laughs> yes. Leader Schumer, you've said a couple times that this would push Americans over the finish line of yes. the pandemic. Do you expect that this is going to be the last COVID relief bill? Let's hope. Needed? Look, it's a very strong bill. Part of it will depend on COVID. How long will it last? Will there be a new strain? Part of it will depend on the economy has some underlying weaknesses that need bolstering. How deep and weak are those? Our number one lodestar is going to be helping the American people. And if they need more help, we'll do another bill. If this bill is sufficient, and I think it's going to help in a big way, then we won't do another bill. 
Do you have any concerns that this could be a parallel to the 20, to 2010 when Democrats pushed forward to stimulus, mostly on Democratic votes in the Senate, straight party line not in the House, not, and then the, you guys not lost even the close. House? This is so. Seventy-five percent of the American people want this. Fifty-five percent of the Republicans want it. That's the bottom line. And you know, we'll have a job in the next few weeks. Joe Biden, our caucus, the House, letting the American people know all the important parts of this bill. But this is what they asked for. Plain and simple. Last one. Uh, but do you believe that perhaps this could make bipartisanship more difficult if Republicans... I hope it will be more... And I hope it will make bipartisanship more likely. When Republicans see... We, when we say we want to do it with you, but if we can't do it with you, we'll do it without you, now they know... We're, we're, now we, they know we mean it, and they know we're capable of doing it. So now maybe they'll say they'll come together. Look, again, the bottom line. When per Trump was president, Democrats didn't sit there, fold their hands, and say no. Now Biden's president. We hope they won't continue to do the same thing. Okay? Anything else I'm leaving out? Okay, thanks, everybody. Starting next well, look, you know, I said at the beginning we could do all three things at once. An impeachment trial, that's done. But next week, as I just put on the calendar, Merrick Garland, Marsha Fudge, and uh, the EPA nominee. And then later in the week, we'll do Halland and another nominee. So next week, we're focusing on nominees. And at the very beginning, we've only been around, you know, we've only had the new Congress and the new president for a little more than a month we passed one of the most important pieces of legislation in decades. We've done an impeachment trial, which I think showed um, the American people what Trump was really like. And we're putting, we're filling up his cabinet. We're getting a lot done. I'm proud of my caucus. I, lo I love, I truly love my caucus, every one of them. Including Joe Manchin? Yes, absolutely. Everyone, everyone. I love Bernie. We love, you know, you have to look for, at people for what they're, what, what, look for the good in people. And if we couldn't all come together, we wouldn't get this done. Any one of us could have not had it done, okay? So I am, I have nothing bad to say in answer to your question about any single member of my caucus. How could you when you got 50 votes? And by the way, all those tough amendments, they tried to put all those logs in our path. On every single important vote, every Democrat voted to block those amendments. They tried to trick us and everything else. That's an amazing testament to this caucus. Every single vote, you saw the votes they put forward. Not once did anyone dissent on any important vote. And the few dissents, they came to us and it was okay because it wasn't a, deb it wasn't a um, killer amendment or we didn't need their vote. Do you great. ever try to make thank a serious you. effort to get thank Murkowski you. or any of the Republicans? Okay, thank you. We hope the Republicans will start joining us. I have a very good relationship with Lisa Murkowski. We hope they will start joining us for the good of the country. So there you have it. A very happy Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate of the United States. And all because of those in Georgia, who I give a lot of credit to once again. They had to vote again for the second time in just around two months, just over two months. And we've had this terrorist attack on our country. And on that very same floor where you had these evil people, these disgusting human beings parading around and stealing things and committing violent acts and killing police officers and all kinds of things. On that very floor where you had these people marauding, these terrorists marauding around with 
zip ties, zip ties, and walkie-talkies on the floor of the Senate exactly two months ago today, on Wednesday, January the 6th, 2021. It's now Saturday, March the 6th, 2021. Exactly two months later. The Senate votes. The Democratic senators vote, including Kirsten Sinema, including Joe Manchin. For a COVID-19 relief bill that will help people. It will help them. Of course, we all want it to go further and farther. And it must. And I think when the House looks at this, they're going to they're going to vote this through. And I think there's something somewhat symbolic about the fact that it was voted through in the Senate exactly two months after these terrorists didn't care anything about the American public. They didn't care about police. Blue lives matter. They killed police. I don't care how many blue live flags they carry. And then they're killing police officers. Give me a break. These people don't believe in anything. They barely believe in themselves. And it's all about selfishness and this white male violence. And I'm sorry, the media, I'm not sorry, actually. The corporate news media has to stop interviewing these people like they're fucking celebrities. These are terrorists. And I don't care whether they set foot in the building. I don't care whether they stole laptops. I don't care whether they smeared excrement. They are terrorists. I don't care whether they committed violence. They're terrorists. And stop giving them, these white men, a platform. Stop interviewing them like they're freaking, oh, they're Johnny down the street. And you're interviewing them. You're enabling these folks. And it's about time you knocked it off. I told you all to stop it. But they're not going to stop because it's all about ratings. So we can interview these violent clowns, these thugs, these killers. Let's interview them. Oh, yeah, let's put them out there on TV. Let's normalize it. If it was some black folk, you know they wouldn't be interviewing them and treating them like celebrities. You know it. Come on now. Enough is enough. Stevie Wonder. Oh, man, I love Rocket Love. I love Rocket Love. Great tune, by the way. If you haven't uh, listened to it, listen to it in full. I've actually tweeted that out uh, on my Twitter account, at the popcorn, R-E-E-L. Rocket Love from Stevie Wonder's album, Hotter Than July. Back in 1980, I think, that one. Um, That's a great album, by the way, Hotter Than July. But Stevie Wonder's best work was in the 1970s. There, there was that run of albums. And I always, oh, I often tweet about this. Well, every now and again, I do tweet about 
the three or four albums for Stevie Wonder that really was the very best work he's done. And I don't think, sorry, Stevie, I don't think that he's going to do anything as good as that again. And those albums are as follows. And I always get the order wrong. Talking Book, I think that was 71 or 72. Inner Visions, Songs in the Key of Life, and Fulfilling This First Finale. Those four albums are the best four albums that Stevie Wonder has ever, ever recorded. I mean, those are the great albums. Those are the four greatest. Some people, and I've had conversations with many an individual who knows those albums in and out, and a number of people I talk to have always, uh, have often said to me that they think that Talking Book is the best of those four albums. Um, I, I go back and forth between two albums of that list. One of, on those four, one of those is Songs in the Key of Life, which I think most people beyond the people I talk to and many millions of people would say is Stevie Wonder's best album ever. But I usually go backwards and forwards between Songs in the Key of Life and Inner Visions. I actually think that, quite frankly now, and I've now kind of stuck with this for the last few months, <laughs> that could change, you know. We are entitled to change our minds. And art and anything else, you know, you change your mind with things in life. I think that Inner Visions is the best album that Stevie Wonder has ever recorded. If you look at the tracks on that album, if you listen to those tracks, such a really good array of music. And I think that Talking Book actually jumps ahead of Songs in the Key of Life. And that's a tough call to make because I think Songs in the Key of Life is an exceptional Stevie Wonder album. Exceptional. But if I had to rank right now, I would go number one, Inner Visions. Inner Visions. Just some great stuff on that album. Great sounds, great songs. The writing of, the writing. Stevie's writing, his every, the lyrics are so good. And Stevie is just a brilliant musician, isn't he? He's been doing this since the late 1950s now. When he was known as Little Stevie Wonder into the 1960s. I mean, Stevie Wonder, so glad he's still with us. You've got to celebrate people when they're here, you know? And really give them their, you know, as they say, the big ups. Give them their praise now when they're here, you know? Stevie Wonder, extraordinary, and an activist too, I might add. Extraordinary. And I, you know, I, I spend a few minutes here talking about him a little bit. And man, he's, you know, he's still doing his thing. He's got, he had an album out, I think, early. I think he had an album out sometime last year, I think late last year. Um, he's on Twitter at Stevie Wonder too. Follow, follow him. It's just, just it, it, yeah, anyway, I. But I go with number one, Inner Visions. Number two, <laughs> it's so difficult. I, I've now changed my mind again. The number two album is Songs in the Key of Life. Three, Talking Book. And four, Fulfilling This First Finale, which also has some extraordinary material on it. All four of those albums are extraordinary. You're never going to... Stevie Wonder will... Ne 
I would love him to do something as great as Innovisions again. But as good as Hot, Hotter Than July is as an album, you have to. If you've not listened to Stevie Wonder from the early 1970s, oh, dear, oh, dear, you are missing a trick. How do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? I don't know how they could expect that after all of this time, we would still just be silent if there is an active role that the firm is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. And if that comes with risk of losing things, I mean, I've, there's a lot that's been lost already. Wow. There you go. American royalty interviews English royalty tomorrow. Although both of those voices you heard are American voices. Oprah Winfrey, the queen of the United States of America, basically. (laughs) I mean, she is. Come on now. And she's the closest thing to royalty that we have here in the United States. And, of course, in my native country of England, in the United Kingdom, is Meghan Markle, British royalty, English royalty. Although she's not treated like that. And I know Meghan Markle is American, yes. Um, And a black woman, as is Oprah, of course. Two black women, two royal figures, one of whom is not treated like royalty. I would tell you that white women in America treat Oprah Winfrey like royalty. They really do. And I know that's a blanket generalization. (laughs) And I shouldn't be doing that. It is the truth, however, that I'll say many white women in the United States treat Oprah Winfrey like royalty. They absolutely like her. They love her. I mean, I'm not just talking about when she did the talk show and the audience was 93% white female or 73% white female. I don't remember. I didn't watch every single episode of her talk show way back when. But Oprah's loved by everybody, almost. Well, you know. But but Oprah's loved. I mean, she's beloved here. She's well-respected here in the United States. Um, She's a megastar. She's iconic. There's so many things about Oprah Winfrey who, you know, she's helped so many millions of people around the world. I mean, not just the, everybody talks about, you get a car, you know, the whole, you, I mean, she, remember when she gave a car to every single member of her, what, 200 member audience or whatever it was, gave them all a car? You get a car and you get a car, everybody in the audience. I get it, I know. Oprah Winfrey is a multi-millionaire, billionaire. That's not the point. Not every millionaire or billionaire gives 200 or how many ever 100 people a car, each one of them, right? Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos, who is infinitely ri- richer than Oprah Winfrey is, does not give his employees cars, right? He doesn't give members of the board of direct. He doesn't give them all cars, does he? He might give him a gold watch or something, but he doesn't give him cars. I mean, I, you know, I, I assume he doesn't give them cars. 
But the point is not to talk about Jeff Beard, to talk about Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey here in the United States tomorrow is interviewing or will be you'll be seeing the interview of Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, and Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, here in the United States. Now, they both live, they, meaning uh, Harry and Meghan, they live here in California. In Southern California, though, not up here in Northern California. They live down in, in uh, I don't know if it's Los Angeles proper, I don't think so. They live, is it Montecito? I don't even remember. But the point is, they live in Southern California, and they are very happy there. The, and I'll talk about this a bit more in tomorrow's episode because I don't want to get into it too much now. But I will talk about it a bit. And I know we here in the United States, for those of you listening from the UK who are in the UK listening to this, we do get to see this interview before you. And I promise you, I will not. Not that you will listen to my podcast episode to, to hear it anyway. But I will not be talking about the interview in any real detail until after Monday night. Because Monday night is when people in the United Kingdom will get to see the interview. It will air on Monday night in the UK. I believe it's Monday night in the UK. And... Those of you in the UK will really get to watch. They'll really get to watch and see and make their assessments. We here in the United States will get to see this tomorrow on CBS television. And it will be on 8 p.m. in all time zones here in the United States. So watch out for that because I, I think it's going to be fascinating. You just heard Meghan Markle there. About the firm, and that's the official name for the royal family, by the way. And the fact that she did not even call them the royal family or call them any, it just shows you the way that family have treated her and Harry, but particularly her. And I am going to touch a bit on that tomorrow. Because I have a number, and I've kind of touched on this before in episodes, but I've, I have a number of things to say about the royal family and about Meghan Markle, and about the British press in particular, as well as some of the natives of my native country, fellow, my fellow country persons, who I, and anyway, I won't go into it here, who absolutely have a very definite view of Meghan Markle. And I want to get into a bit of that tomorrow. I kind of hinted at this in yesterday's episode that I would be going in this direction. And I know it's a little gossipy because like, I can't stand that kind of stuff. But I do want to talk about this because there is politics involved. There's other things as, as well involved, obviously, as well. I'll be touching on that a bit tomorrow, a bit more, as we get ready for this this interview I'm telling you, I think it's going to be very good. Oprah is a good interviewer and not in the ways that people I think really appreciate. Oprah has a very, very good sense of interview skill. And it's not the kind of thing that people really see, I don't think. It's the way that she listens to a response 
And then the way that she comes back with a question that either takes the response that you just heard into a dimension and an area that tends to get that person to open up more or push that person to give a very either incriminating response or a response that's like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Oprah has a really keen sense of placing a question and letting a moment from the answer play. She's really, really good at that. And I'm telling you she is. She, I'm telling you she is. And I've seen her interview people a million times. And almost every time she does it, and it's the way she does it. She did this with uh, Lance Armstrong a few years ago. And you come out looking at Lance Armstrong saying, what are you doing? You know, I mean, she she does this with, a, you know, there's some interviewers. And for those of you in the UK who know Jeremy Paxman, right? Jeremy Paxman is a hatchet man. He's very good at that. He 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 is really good at wearing the sense of audience disgust at home. So you, the viewer, watching Jeremy Paxman, who used to be on the BBC, he's now on ITV. I think he's on Channel Four actually now. Uh, I forget which network he's on. He's on. He's bounced around in the UK. But the point is, Jeremy Paxman it is really good at wearing contempt. The audience's contempt for some of the nonsense that the guest or interviewee is giving back. And so, but he, he made that an art form and did it so brilliantly for so long. Now, though, he's a bit of a parody of himself, I think. Anybody who is listening to this who resides in England in particular or in any other part of the United Kingdom would would readily, likely agree with me that Jeremy Paxman has become a parody of himself. But there are interviews here in the United States who have too. Larry King was never one of them. The late, great Larry King, who passed away um, last month, was not one of those. He, he always had this certain technique. And Oprah Winfrey has a technique that those of you here in the United States who are going to see this interview tomorrow at 8 p.m. in your time zone, throughout the time zones of the United States, you can watch this beginning at 8 p.m. Set your DVR if you're not going to be watching it when it is aired but I will be watching and taping this because I will be talking about this a bit in uh, a, a subsequent episode. But tomorrow, one of the things I will be talking about, and I will advance preview this here. I will talk about to warm people up, if you will, to get them primed for this interview that Oprah's doing and has done. It's already in the books. It's already in the can, if you will. This interview, I will... Fill in some of the context for those of you who are not up on some of the stuff that's been going on. I mean, I'm sure everyone who's listened to this saw that wedding nearly three years ago now. That wedding being the royal wedding of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And I'm going to go into some of the background tomorrow. Among other things, there'll be a couple of other things beyond the uh, Meghan Markle, Prince Harry... British press, English people kind of thing that I'm going to get to. There's going to be other things. So that's it. Um, away from the politics, um, Stevie Wonder and Oprah Winfrey and Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Who ever thought 
that I could end an episode of this podcast with those individuals I just mentioned. I will say, you can go now to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store at the dash Politocrat dot myshopify.com look at the brand new series of items all t-shirts on this occasion but look at the brand new series of items all 27 of which i designed yours truly please take a look now the love series that's the love in retro series to be precise the hand of souls series the Audio Experience Series. And the Kings and Queens Series. How appropriate. Just in time for the interview that Oprah did with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Meghan, Duchess of Sussex. And Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex. Take a look at that Kings and Queens Series. I think you'll really like that. Only available at the dash politocrat dot my Shopify. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.